Emmanuel is one of the, oop, pardon me, Emmanuel is one of the, bummer, I didn't break anything, thank goodness. Um, one of the names given to Jesus, it just means God with us. Um, and so as we move into this kind of season of Advent in which we're preparing to celebrate, and we do so by celebrating, um, but as we prepare to celebrate um, the way we as Christians often do, we celebrate the coming of Christ every year. Um, we do it at this season just because this was a good season to do it, not because this is when it actually happened um, 2,000 years ago. But um, as we spend these few weeks, as traditionally Christians have for a long, long time, um, celebrating the birth of Christ and, and thinking about that, um, as we looked at kind of this main message um, uh, of darkness and light and the significance of that as we consider the dark world that, that Jesus was born into as a baby, um, it, was, it was a pretty rough time. Um, hope kind of presumes that things aren't going well, uh, at least that they could get better. Um, I, don't, I don't know if you're under a perfect situation how you would hope what you would hope for, but um, the idea that, that Jesus came into a dark world as we've looked at and talked about even the, the darkness that we face um, and in the video <clears throat> the, the role of Jesus coming as the light of the world. The, the Israel, Israel at the time, 2,000 years ago, was being oppressed from the outside. That is, external oppressors, the Romans. Internally, they had those who had sympathized with or had capitulated to the Romans. Um, in fact, the religious leadership of the time, the priestly part of the religious leadership, um, I was taught essentially was the mafia. At that time, I mean, they were the they were nothing more than organized crime in religious garb um, at the time of Jesus Christ. The zealots who fought against Rome equally fought against the priests of the time. Um, and then there was the the other internal crisis that they faced, the internal oppression that they faced of of their own religious leaders, even the ones who were pursuing some type of religious fidelity, and they were still. Um, this, this, this strange legalism that they lived in and that they, that they placed on the people um, that they were supposed to be serving. We'll get to an example of that before we're done today, um, of just how, how oppressive that was. Add to that the fact that it was, it was so spiritually dark, there was so little light um, from a spiritual perspective that, that, think about it, so when you read through the Gospels, every time Jesus goes to a new town, who, who welcomes him? Who are his announcers in new towns. What's that? Yeah, demons. Demon-possessed people. Can you imagine if every small community had its own demon-possessed person or two openly demon-possessed, who we all knew that when we referenced them, like, oh, did you see so-and-so today? Yeah, you mean the demon-possessed guy? Yeah, that was... That, that, that imagine what that would... How dark a place it has to be for a culture to have just accepted that there are demon-possessed people in our midst. Oh, yeah, they live over in that graveyard. Hey, when you walk by the graveyard, be careful. They're creepy enough already, but there's that demon-possessed guy that that's where he makes his home. Periodically, he comes out of there and attacks people. Like, that's the world Jesus was born into. This, this dark, kind of at every level. So when we talk about him being the light of the world, um, it's, it's got to be a pretty powerful thing. This is part of our experiential message as we, as we experience this and as we engage in the, the liturgy, meaning the, the engagement, how we engage with the, the experience of worship and teaching in a way that has been done throughout time and that is done around the world. 
Um, we, we, as we engage in both, as we study scripture, um, in some cases the way it's been taught, understanding it in its own context and, and all of this, we have to keep in mind um, as we talk about this idea of darkness to light, of Jesus being the light of the world and born into the world, it was, it was no challenge to stick with John chapter 9, which is the account of a man born blind. And his interaction with Jesus, it's, it's not a tough connection. It's not even subtle to see this. Part of what I want for you and want for us is that this experience of the gospel, this experience of the nativity, of the coming of Christ, is not something that we have to set aside. Just a couple of chapters of the Bible, um, although I'm sure in the future we will be in, uh, in the beginning of Matthew, the beginning of Luke, and, and those passages that are so powerful and some of our favorites about the coming of Christ. At the same time, the gospel of Jesus, the light coming into the world, isn't just those few chapters. It is woven into every line, every story, every account in Scripture. And part of what we want is for it to be woven into our lives. So we talked about the three levels of narrative and the third one being the story that the Holy Spirit is telling through us and with us as we engage in Scripture. Well, we want that to be interwoven with the gospel, with the coming of Jesus Christ as well. So that, that, that we, have those, we have those glasses that see parables everywhere that we engage in the reality of the gospel as it speaks into our very lives today. And the way we engage with our families and our friends and others, that, that that gospel is right there. So to catch you up, Jesus has been spending the last couple of chapters, um, for us the last few months, but Jesus, for Jesus it had just been an evening and an afternoon, um, arguing with people about who he was. And, and there was some debate about that. And as he taught and he was hinting at these, these, who he really was, and he would say things like, I am the light of the world, and no one has seen the Father but me, and there is no truth except through me. Then people began to suspect, like, wait, what are you exactly saying about yourself? It's really starting to sound like, so we believe maybe, some of us believe you're Messiah, maybe. But, but you're not stopping there. Some of us believe maybe you're a prophet, but you're not, you're keeping going past that. What exactly are you saying about yourself and the end of chapter 8, Jesus makes it abundantly clear in language that no one could misunderstand when he answers their question with this phrase, before Abraham was, I am. No uncertainty, no unclarity. Jesus Christ is claiming to be one and the very same with Yahweh, the God of the Jews, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac. I am. He is claiming to be one and the same. They don't miss that. They pick up rocks. Despite the fact that they are under, apparently under some kind of Roman edict that they're not allowed to do um, capital punishment, they are so overwhelmed by Jesus making that claim, especially in the temple, that they're so overwhelmed by their own zealots, their own um, zeal, um, that, that they pick up rocks to kill him. But before they can, he vanishes into the crowd. As he is kind of, I guess, in a weird way, fleeing for his life, he and his disciples sneak out. They find one of the exits from the temple ground. As they leave the temple, that's where we get in chapter 9. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. This man would not have been allowed in the temple. People with physical defects were not allowed in the temple. So here he is just outside the temple gates, begging, hoping for some mercy. And he's right there. And Jesus has time to stop and engage with this person in the midst of kind of fleeing for his life. There's so much there. This man born into the world. Jesus born into a dark world is the light. 
This man was just born into a truly dark world, never having seen ever. We'll talk more about him later. Blindness is a theme um, here in this passage and in other passages in John. Very often, so this is a hint, when you run into passages in the Gospels that involve a blind person, one of the things you want to be looking for is what are people supposed to be seeing? What is being revealed in this passage? Most of the time, only the blind person and Jesus understands what's going on. Everybody else is blind to the truth. And usually only the blind person can get it. So be looking for that. Um, Okay. His disciples said to him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now I have to stop here. Um, I could easily, and we've done this on Wednesday night, we could spend hours talking just about this phrase. But I, I want to take, instead of hours, just a couple of minutes and reference this. We want an easy answer to human suffering. We, we want it to be easy, right? A leads to B. So if we just stay away from A, then B won't ever happen. That's what we want, right? The behavioral modification, it's often too, way too often been taught in churches, especially Baptist churches, right? That's why we don't drink, smoke, chew, or date girls who do, right? Because then the bad things won't happen to us. We stay away from that stuff, then the bad things won't happen to us. Hasn't worked out, has it? It it turns out this is a fallen world and bad stuff happens. And the reasons are not simple. They are never simple. They're radically complex. In fact, one of the reasons that I am a Christian is that most of the other world religions offer a simple, childish answer to the problem of suffering. And that is so clearly not accurate, I can't accept it, even for a second. I can't accept simple answers to human suffering. Um, I I have too much awareness through counseling to hear the very worst of the worst stories, to engage with people who have lived a life that has been some version of almost hell on earth, at least for part of their life, and to go, sorry, simple answers don't cut it under these conditions. They just don't. In fact, let me let let that be the first little teachable thing that the disciples are going to learn um, let's stay away as, as, as mature believers, let's stay away from simple answers about people's suffering. When someone is suffering, please don't offer them a simple little answer that really is about making us feel better. Instead, engage with them in their suffering. There's no simple promises that are going to do it. And, and, and think about this, think about this. Without, again, without going into too much detail, I grew up around professors, I understand the idea that people have to be experts, and I'm, I'm good with that. And this, that's why this is intuitively, though it's no comfort, intuitively not been hard for me to understand this. I grew up around people who knew about their area of expertise in ways I never would, and knew I never would. My dad's a forestry professor, if he says it's a pine tree, don't argue. I promise it's a pine tree. Whatever he says the tree is, That's what it is. Our desire to to argue with the experts on stuff like that, I just grew up around these experts. I get it. We've talked about this many times on Wednesday nights, the problem of suffering and stuff like that. It's a tough question and a tough problem. So for me, reading through the book of Job and getting to the end, by the way, what is it about Job? I mean, what is it about? So what, what is that one special trait that Job has? He failed to avoid something in his life. What is that special trait, that one trait that that Job has? that causes God to call attention to him for Satan's sake, and then Job gets to spend the next, I don't know, six months kind of in hell on earth, losing his family, his, his, everything he has, all of that, his own health. What, what was the trait that Job had that, that drew that type of horrible life for a few months? 
That's right. He was righteous. He did not forsake God. Now listen to this. If righteousness can be the trait that causes you to suffer, then kind of everything else is on the table, isn't it? I mean, certainly unrighteousness, well, well, yeah, that now makes total sense. If you could be a totally righteous person who is so, who will never forsake God, and yet you end up suffering because of that trait. So it's not a simple answer. And in fact, when people offer, offer or ask for simple answers in the Bible, they typically get slapped down a little bit, like Job. It's gentle, but it's definitely, listen, Job, can you do the hard stuff with me? Do you, can you hang stars in the sky? No. Can you make it snow? No. Can you, even, can you even wrestle a crocodile? No. You can't do any of the easy stuff? Well, then the hard stuff, like understanding how and why humans suffer, is going to be too much for you. That doesn't offer a lot of like emotional comfort, but it does offer us this comfort. You may not understand it, but someone does. They get it. It's like when you took statistics in college, right? You may not understand it, but the professor clearly thinks he knows about it. He's, he's all excited about it, right? Nothing like an excited statistics professor. But for you, you're like, I didn't, I didn't follow any of that. I'm glad he likes this stuff. God gets this. It never slips out of his fingers. It never spins out of control. He gets this. So here the disciples are, and and yet again, another one of our exercises in missing the point. Jesus has just left that scenario. They walk past this person, and the disciples think this is a good moment for a theological conversation. Keep in mind, the man is blind, not deaf. So standing right here by this guy, they go, hey, rabbi, quick question. Who sinned, this guy or his parents? Now, I I don't know where their theology comes from. I don't know how he could have sinned to cause his own blindness since he was born blind. I don't know. There's all types of weird teaching about that kind of stuff. But, but that, that's their question right next to this guy. And Jesus' answer to them is, is fascinating. It's, the answer is not simple. It's not easy. But it is divine. It's not that this man sinned, nor his parents. Like they thought they were so clever. Like they offered him two options. And Jesus is like, wrong and wrong. It's not him or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, I'm, I'm also just honoring enough that I want, to, I want to say the same thing to Jesus. Like, I mean, you get that he's blind, not deaf, right? Can you imagine? I mean, if I was there, if I was sitting there and I've been blind since childhood, since, since I was born, sitting here by the temple begging, and Jesus says, no, no, this guy was born blind so that you could see the power of God. There'd be some part of me that'd want to go, well, I'm glad I could help. You know, sitting here all these years like, this is, a t- this is a tough little passage, although it does turn beautiful very quickly. There's some tough stuff. Now, Jesus has time to stop and engage with him. What, what, what's going on here? What works is, the, is, is God going to display? What evidence? Remember, they were demanding signs from him in the temple. If they just paid attention, they might have gotten to see this sign, but because they decided they wanted to kill him, he flees, and only, only his disciples see it. So this man is born blind. In the Jewish way of thinking, as I understand it, there were sick people who could be healed. There were people born with a problem who could not be healed. And then there were dead people, and they were dead. Jesus is going to break all of those boundaries during the miracles of his life. The first one is this. And in John, they happen in order. The first, he's already healed people who are sick. Now he's going to heal someone born sick. This is, this is, this is truly a miracle. It, it is transcendent of even stuff that we could do today in a lot of cases. Um, So, what is the miracle he's going to perform? Essentially, it is this. I take blind people, and I make them see. The ones who obey me, 
get to experience a new life. Exactly like he told them the chapter before. If you obey me, you will be set free. And once I have set you free, you are free indeed. That's, that's the story that's going on here. Now, I want you to picture it correctly, because we always like to do that. So up on the Temple Mount, <clears throat> steep stairs heading down to the south, down to the Pool of Siloam. Long, steep stairs, by the way. So over to the east, you have the um, Mount of Olives. Over to the west, you have the hillsides that kind of rise up next to Jerusalem on that side. So here you have the sun. It's been a long day. The sun is setting. The sun is setting and it's starting to get dark. Long shadows beginning to be cast. And Jesus is stops and talks to this man. He says this. It was not this man that sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me. I love that it's we. While it is still day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. He says, we, not just him, we must work the works while it is still light. Night is coming when no one can work. Soon everyone will be blind. At some point, death takes us. And one of the things that comes along with death is blindness to the world. When you close your eyes that last time, your job is done. Your work is finished. He's referencing to the fact that when he's going to be gone, there will be a light that goes out of the world. I've always wondered, I heard a, a, a talking about this <clears throat> with a, a guy in Israel standing on the Sea of Galilee and imagining what would have been like for the, for the demoniac, the man possessed by a demon in the Gadarenes as Jesus walked around the northern and, other, and eastern sides of the, of the Sea of Galilee. Could he see him? Like in his spiritual light, was it like somebody was shining a giant spotlight everywhere Jesus went? When, the Jesus came, when he came to earth and walked around in the spiritual realm, was it like there was always this light on the horizon wherever Jesus was from them? This light walking around everywhere? I, I, don't, I don't know, it just seems cool. Here you have this light going out of the world. Jesus' life on earth is dimming. He's only got a few months left that he's here. John has said over and over again it wasn't his time, but that time is coming. We're going to get there in just a very few chapters. But the question I think that's demanded of us in this passage is, are we aware of this? Are we engaged with this? There will come a time when our hearts will stop beating and our bodies will turn cold and our time on this earth is done. Are we working as though night is coming? Are we working as though there's a day when we won't be able to work anymore? I think that's part of why he says we here. He means himself. He means his apostles. I think he means those of us who are going to read this later. One of my favorite quotes by Jim Elliott. Jim Elliott has a lot of cool quotes, but one of my favorites, uh, my favorite one is this one. Now I'm paraphrasing it. I need to look up the exact quote. But this is close to this. Make sure when it comes time to die that all you have left to do is die. Make sure that we are living as though the night is coming, as though the day is dimming. Having said these things, to his disciples. So he just told them, night is coming. He turns around, and you can picture this. If you, I mean, this man is sitting here on the ground. He's overhearing this conversation that's going on in his presence. How strange that must have been. He's been hearing all this turmoil that's going on in the temple. Somebody comes out, they have this conversation by him, and it says in verse 6, having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with mud and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. 
Now, John is famous, and we'll run into more of this. John is famous for telling us things he's worried we don't know. Like this. Sometimes it's going to seem like he's speaking the obvious. We've talked about that. But here he says, so Jesus literally sends, sends the man to sent. Remember the pool of Siloam. We're at the Feast of Booths. This is where the water was dipped each day during the Feast of Booths. This is the Sabbath after the Feast of Booths. And the man, the, the man would go down and dip the water for the, for the ritual purification and cleansing in the temple. This is also the time during the Festival of Lights, not the Festival of Lights. I don't want to misunderstand. Hanukkah is the Festival of Lights. During the Feast of, um, which is, by the way, in the next week or two. Um, but in the, uh, maybe this week. It's tomorrow. Yeah, yeah, I knew it. Gosh, yeah, it's tomorrow. Um, so they would, in a feast of, of booths, they would, put, they would have a, a ceremony where they put lights up in the temple. We've talked about that. It would shine out over the whole city. Big, big menorah, giant menorahs. So that's what's going on. And again, the context still fits. It still is working here. So he said these things. He did this and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. Now we have a couple of pictures um, of the pool of Siloam. So the first one is, understand that, you, that a few years ago, um, you used to go to this little place until about 08, 2008, 2009. You used to go to this really podunk, nasty-looking little set of stairs down to a little bitty pool. It was terrible. And it, had, it still has a sign, if I remember correctly, that says Pool of Siloam on it, because some denominations decided it's Pool of Siloam, and they're not giving that up easily, I can tell you. But, but so you go down in there, and it's, it's just it's horrible. Like, and, and it should have made everyone question, like, this does not seem like Herod the Great. Herod the Great does not build things like this. If, it's, if he could build it small, he might as well spend 10 times as much money and build it 10 times as big. If he could build it, it was always bigger. So a few years ago, in about 08, 07, they dug a sewage line and they hit this. This is the Pool of Siloam. What you're looking at is about half, maybe two-thirds, of one side of the four sides of this pool with steps. You see how high it goes up into the hillside of these steps Going down, the the Jewish uh, um, the the Jewish officials they painted um, a mural of what of perhaps what it might have looked like at the time. Although honestly, I don't think they're doing Herod the Great justice here either. Um, but that's that's probably a pretty good estimation. So Jesus would have sent him. Now keep in mind, he sent a blind man down hundreds of feet of stairs to an extremely crowded Jerusalem. To the pool of Siloam. It would certainly not have looked like that this day. It would have been flooded with people, so to speak. Okay? So that's where he sent him. Now, why spit in the clay? Man, you, you want to have fun with commentaries. Look up stuff like this. Because the truth is, no one knows. No one knows what this is meant to be. Um, some people seem to think that there was this um, uh, idea at the time that saliva was a cure for blindness. And, and um, you know, whether that came from moms spitting in their kids' eyes and rubbing the dirt out of their eyes or what, but, but there was a, there's a sense of like that this may have been a cure for blindness. I don't, I don't know. No one knows. But Jesus makes, so he uses saliva to make that. Some people think, so th this would be a one, so as a good first century Jewish audience, as you're learning over time to think like a good first century Jew, you hear the word clay, and, and two possible things probably come to your mind. One is the creation of man. When God made man out of clay. That should be one place maybe your brain goes. And then maybe they're saying, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm putting this clay on your eyes, and now you go wash the humanity out of your eyes. Wash the, what it means to be born of Adam out of your eyes, and that will heal you. Okay, maybe. 
I know there were clay as clay tablets. Remember the people of Israel to wear, to, to wear the law of God between their eyes. And so maybe clay tablets like Moses. So he made little clay little bits of clay and stuck them on the man's eyes so the guy would have God's law in front of his eyes. As he washed that off, the first thing would be that clay that he's, okay, I mean, good. Here's what we know. What we know is it was breaking Sabbath to make clay. So Sabbath, you're not allowed to work on Sabbath, and one of the strange legalistic things that the Pharisees and the rabbis had come up with was this rule, there's lots of them, hundreds of tiny little rules about every little thing, especially on Sabbath. Now, that happened all during the week. But on Sabbath, it's like they quadrupled. They went out of control with these rules. So, for example, you weren't allowed to make clay on Sabbath. That's working. I'm not kidding that apparently at the time of Jesus, a devout Jew, if they needed to spit on the Sabbath, would carefully spit on a tree or on a, on a rock, so as to not accidentally spit in the dust and thereby make clay. That's how seriously they were. Can you imagine the oppression of living like that? That if you accidentally spit in the dirt and it turned into mud, that you could get in trouble, legal trouble, by the religious leaders. That's an awful way to live. And yet that's how these people lived. So Jesus, here at the door of the temple spits in the clay, rubs it together and makes clay in absolute defiance of this law. Puts it on the man's eyes and then sends the guy approximately, um, there's debate on whether or not the man now walks too far for Sabbath. How, how many steps you're allowed to take on Sabbath. And so it may be that Jesus then sends the man to break the Sabbath as well. Remember, none of this is in the Bible. Keep the Sabbath holy? Yes, that's in the Bible. The only prescription behaviorally was don't start a fire. Beyond that, all this is made up. So all this is made up by humans. How, how about that? So Jesus sends them down there. Um, we actually just quoted from Isaiah 64, 8, uh, back to the idea of him being clay. This is part of the teachable maybe. But now, O oh Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay and you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. But we know he did this. And so the man goes down to the pool of Siloam. He washed and he came back seeing. His first sight, the beautiful pool of Siloam, the people who were there at the end of the Feast of Tabernacles with all the different things that was going on. Now, who was this guy? Um, you gotta love, when you, when you have a, per, a character like this in the book of John or in the other gospels, there's a very good possibility that the early readers knew exactly who this was. I mean, I think it's safe to assume this man was a convert. He was a follower of Jesus. And so it may be that he was an important person in the church back then. We just, we just don't know. The original readers may have known. But let me tell you a couple of things. So I get curious about this kind of stuff when I'm studying this, and I have the luxury of doing this. So I went online. I don't know how we researched anything before we had the internet, by the way. Um, uh, Jim Dennison was here in the first service because his granddaughter got baptized, and he was sitting right over there, and I said that line, and he was like, yes. Like, it was a, um, the guy who does Dennison Forum. I mean, this is a how we ever did it. So I go on YouTube, and I search man born blind. Now, obviously, I got about 5 million sermons on John chapter 9 as an option to watch on, on YouTube. More intriguing and much more time uh, went into this. Um, there is actually a man who has his own YouTube channel who is a man born blind, and he literally just talks about what it's like to be blind, and he gets questions sent in, and he answers them. There was a great one where he's discussing with a woman who has become blind, she was not born blind, and him, and discussing the difference between being becoming blind and being born blind. And so I began... I mean, I spent way too much time on this. 
It was so fascinating, though, to learn about this. Let me just give you a taste of what it must have been like to be a man born blind so that you will have a sense of what we're dealing with and who we're dealing with, who this is that Jesus engaged with. So, so first of all, they asked the man on the YouTube channel, what's something that you wish you could do? And he said, catch a ball. You ever thought about that? He's ne- he said, I have never caught a ball on my own. I can't see it coming. Actually, what's funny is, so he's kind of a funny guy. He actually, they, when they said, what's the worst part about being, bl- being born blind? He sat there for a long time, and finally he goes, um, I can't see. Like, that was the, <laughs> that's pretty funny. Um, okay, so he, but he, he, he talks about catching a ball. That would be what he goes, when I have to catch a ball, when my friends try to help me catch a ball, because they want me to have that experience, he's like, they have to treat me like a child. Like, no, stand perfectly still. Now put out your arms. No, put out your arms further. No, now put your hands closer together. Okay, ready? Boom, right in my face. And it doesn't, like, I can't, I have no idea it's coming. I'm like, I don't want to, please don't. Uh. And so, Anyway, it's, it's, I've never thought about that. Well, if you're born blind, you've never done that. He said another one was knowing when his friends enter the room. He's like, he has no idea. He's at, a, he's at a party with friends or whatever. His friend shows up. Everybody else knows who's there. He has no idea. If they don't speak to him, he doesn't get to know who's there. I was like, that's, I'd never thought about that. What would that be like? He talked about numerous other things. When asked if you could have surgery to be able to see, would you do it? And he was like, I, I would because I'd have to try he said, but, but, but chances are it wouldn't work. My brain would be overwhelmed by those senses. I wouldn't know what to do. I would have to, he's, he's, he actually has eyes. They just don't work. And so he just has his eyes closed all the time, like the entire interviews. He's sitting there, standing there like this. And so, and so as he talked about, I, I would have to try it, but I don't know that it works. Re- understand, Jesus healed way more than just a man's eyes. I mean, he had to heal stuff in his brain, and he had to, I mean, there's all kinds of stuff we now know medically what all it would have taken to heal a man born blind. But here was, here was, here was maybe one of the most fascinating things to me is this. So he, he said, I don't understand paintings. He said, I, don't, I have no concept for the fact that, that you guys can draw a three-dimensional object on two-dimensional paper, and you know what it is. He said, that, that means nothing to me, because I have no concept of that. He said, well, you say, I'm going to draw a car, and you draw a car, and somebody else can look at it and say, oh, that's a car. He's like, that makes no sense to me. How did you possibly draw something that somebody else can recognize as a car? A car is a three-dimensional object. Paper's only two-dimensional. That's impossible to me. I have no concept for that. What the heck, right? How about this? Maybe the best one. Maybe the best one to me was um, that he dreams but he only dreams with sound and smell and taste and touch. When he dreams, he does not dream in sight. There's no sight at all in his dreams. He dreams just like the rest of us. There's just nothing to see. That's how different an experience this man had had who Jesus is interacting with. A totally different life than the rest of us. Now, I had somebody stop me after the first service and point out, that's true for all of us. That's true for all of us. Did you live with, in, in a family with your parents divorced? Or together. That's a totally different experience. Did you live with a family member who had died? Like they had died, and, and so you had a sibling or a parent who had died, and, or a grand, you had grandparents in your life until you were older or you didn't? That's a totally different experience. The, the male and female, totally different experience. Ethnicity can be a totally different experience. These different things, were you bullied as a kid or were you like a middle school god? Those are total different experiences. For some people, that was their everyday constant torture was being ridiculed and tormented every single day in school. That's a totally different experience. We each have this. Now, is God going to step in and and heal us and, and proclaim that, each of us? Not in the same ways. 
Maybe not. I want to finish up this section because, because this really just becomes a play-by-play with one little exception. So are you ready? So here's how the rest of the story plays out. The neighbors and those who had seen him before, seen before as a beggar were saying, is this, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? And some said, it's he. And others said, no, but it's like him. I, I made a comment that was meant to be funny and came out a little dark. I said, they, they, um, uh, notice how they're talking to each other rather than to him. That's how you know they're Christians. And that was meant to be kind of funny. And it was kind of like, oh, everybody ought is like, ouch. Anyway, so, um, but so he kept saying, I am the man. I love that. Like they're, they're talking to each other. Meanwhile, he's wandering around like, no, no, it's me. Seriously, it's me. Stop asking each other. It's me. Like, so they said to him, well, then how were your eyes open? He answered, a man called Jesus made mud, anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and I received my sight. And they said, where is he? What a great question. How would he know? He doesn't know what he looks like. He knows nothing about Jesus. Like he could be standing right there next to him and he would have no way of knowing. So where is he? He's like, I don't know. So they bring him to the Pharisees. Again, their line of reasoning here. So they bring him to the Pharisees, the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes, in case you had missed that earlier. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said... He put mud in my eyes and I washed and now I see. His, his story gets simpler and simpler as he keeps having to retell it, by the way. What's so hard about this? 16, some of the Pharisees said, this man, meaning Jesus is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. Wow. So they've been debating with Jesus. This is the same people debating with Jesus about who he is. He has claimed to be God himself. Yahweh, I am. He has just healed a man born blind, which is not possible in Jewish theology. He just healed a man born blind. How do they know he's not from God? Because he doesn't follow their rules. There is something so teachable here, it is like a punch in the gut. He can't be God because he doesn't God the way I think he ought to God. He can't be God because I have a sick child. He can't be God because, I have, because I've, I've suffered this tragedy. He can't be God because there's so much suffering in the world. He can't See, this is what God would look like. He doesn't look like that, so he must not exist. Wow. He's not God because he doesn't do it the way I think he ought to do it. That is a powerful condemnation. Remember how we had to identify with the bad guys too? This is a place where it's probably time for us to identify with the bad guys a little bit. How do we do that? What limitations and restrictions do we put on God because we don't like the way he does it. He's not following our rules. It's incredible to me that he is right in front of them. He has performed every prophetic miracle except raising some from the dead, and it's coming. But he, he has performed every prophetic miracle. He has done impossible things. He has made these claims. They should know this backwards and forwards, and they are missing it because he made mud on the Sabbath. Dang. So they said to the blind man, what do you say about him? since he has opened his eyes. And the man said, he's a prophet. I think probably more like, he's at least a prophet. I mean, I know he, he, he healed me. That's what we're gonna see this next week. He keeps coming back to this. Listen, he healed me. That's what I, and that's what's gonna keep coming back to you. The Jews did not believe he had been blind and received his sight. So they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and they asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? The parents answered, well, we know this is our son, and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age, he will speak for himself. 
Now, I'd also notice the parents say this. They kind of chicken out here. They're cowards. They don't back their son very well. And the reason is because, it says here, John lets us know, his parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Messiah, to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogues, be removed from public life, essentially, if they made that claim. Therefore, the parents said, he's of age, ask him. We're not going to say, let him say. Jesus had been born about 30 years before. We don't know how old the man had been, but he had been waiting for however long, however much of that, for Jesus to show up. Angels had announced the light to the shepherds, and this man just now is getting to experience it. He had no hope. When we talk about hope, we always start with a little bit of the dark, and then you go, here's the dark. And Jesus says, I see your dark, and I raise you light. And the degree, he's just told us, the degree to which we walk in his light, we experience the freedom that he offers. That's the challenge to us. And then, of course, he's called us, back in Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount, that we are the light of the world. So we should be like that bright light that people experience as they go through their lives. Luke 2, 10, and the angel said to them, fear not. It's a good hope phrase. Fear not. Behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. So we're going to have our time of invitation as we always do. A time to, for you to reflect, engage with God's Spirit, with what He's teaching you through this. You can come up here and pray. You're always invited to do that. It's even prettier than normal today. You can pray where you are. You can sing. If you've already talked to the Welcome Home team and you're ready to come join the church and live in this dysfunctional family with us, we would invite you to do so. However it is that God has spoken to you through his word today, whether it's through the singing or the giving or the greeting or the learning, whatever it is, I pray you will be listening to his spirit, especially in this time. So if you will stand, I'll pray and we'll have our time of invitation. Father, thank you so much for the goodness of your word. Thank you for the power of your word. Thank you that your son is someone who takes blind people like us and gives us sight. And now, Lord, I pray that you will teach us to walk with our eyes open, with the lanterns lit and not hidden, that we could walk in the light and be the light. Thank you, Father, for all of this through your Son, through your Spirit. We look to you in awe and wonder. Amen.